ahead and, and, and begin. Um, I, I really always wonder exactly how to do this, and, and, and I do a, I sort of apologize every Sunday, and Deb says, why don't you just pick up where you left off and not go back, you know, and start there. And we will. We're on chapter 8, and again, I've asked Philip to, you know, I thought about this driving home last week, and, uh, and I thought I'd love to have someone like Philip, William, another person, but Philip, to kind of toss ideas back and forth with. We don't always agree on things, and I think that's wonderful. And just as Philip, I want you to know you have every right to be wrong. Anytime you want. We, we, we usually agree, sometimes we don't. And when we don't, it really interests me. You know, uh, truth flourishes in the soil of controversy. And you need to keep that in mind. Not that we have anything in mind that we don't agree on, but I thought it would be, as we move through Revelation, I think it would be a great idea to kind of go back and forth. He has every freedom to interrupt me, for that matter, so do you. And whenever, you know, he starts speaking, if, if, I, have a, if I have a question, I'll just tap him on the shoulder. This morning's a little bit odd because we really have a short period of time, but we've been having about 40 or 45 minutes. So as a reminder of chapter 8, uh, I'm kind of build us up real quick. We have the great throne scene in chapters four and five, seven seals. When the seventh, uh, as, as the Lamb of God breaks open each seal, uh, that's in chapter six. We have the first four seals or the four horsemen. The first horseman we think is the Antichrist. I think most Bible students would, would agree with that. And so you have this false peace ushered in. And then horsemen two, three, and four are the, are the riders of, of war, uh, famine, and death. The fifth seal is broken open, and we have the martyrs crying for vengeance. Okay. The, 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 the church wanting to, Are be, you sure? to be avenged okay. from evil. And then we right, have uh, in the sixth seal the end of history. Now, that's all in chapter 6. Now, what I want to remind There's us of... There's a couple aspects oh, of this that I'd also like to a moment ago. Uh, bring your attention to that I think are worthy of consideration as well. Uh, I know Michael's want to talk about yeah, a I'm reoccurring sure. um, a series of events. I don't believe in be accidents. I think the Lord the trumpets, choreographs everything. Uh, from, from the seals, trumpets, and the bowls. And where I do agree that I do believe they are talking about essentially the same thing, the part that I, I would probably differ from Michael a little bit in that regard is I believe ultimately the enemy here is Rome in this regard. And so we have these, these trumpets in chapter 6 that were unassuming. In chapter 6, it was the four horsemen. I believe the focus on that as well, actually, is, is really the, the color of the horses and what it represents. And since Rome was the arch enemy of God's people, the persecutor of God's people, we then have judgments against Rome. And so we have that occurring uh, there. Uh, the, the white horse, in my estimation, not, again, not to cause controversy there, but what I see that is, again, to give comfort to God's people here is that the white horse is always a symbol of victory. Victory, it could also be purity, but usually when you're on a white horse, it's victory. And that's one thing that the Christians in the first century needed to know. There was going to be victory for them in the midst of their struggle. And then when you go through the idea of the red horse, war, blood, God is going to judge the people who have harmed God's people. And he's letting them know that. 
and then after 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 that, then there's going to be um, uh, death uh, as well, and then you know, and then the, the fourth horseman, the pale horse, and that is like a pestilence. So so these things that are going going to happen uh, because these people are against God's people, and then you know, one of the big questions Christians may ask themselves would be, what's going to happen to us during all of the, this time? And that's where chapter 7 actually comes in as well. Chapter 7 is letting them know that as the angels hold back the four winds, and winds in Scripture in the Old Testament were divine judgments of God on people. And so the, the angels are holding back the winds until what happens? God's people are marked. And they're going to be marked. And if you go back to uh, Ezekiel chapter 9, you'll find a very similar thing where God's people were going to be marked at that time. Ezekiel was written at a time of the destruction of Jerusalem. He was one of the captives at that time as well. And God said, mark the people. Mark the people that they will be Essentially, they're going to be protected. God is, God is, is going to seal them. He's going to protect them. And that's certainly what, what he does. And so it's just letting them know that they are going to be protected through all of this. And I'll just make one other observation. I'll let Michael go because I know he has a lot to say. Um, but, but even in this regard, you know, a person may, may get the idea even from Revelation 7 or Ezekiel 9. When God protects you, that you're not going to have harm. And if we had the time to read in Ezekiel 9, which we don't right now, it talks about them that they're going to be safe in that regard. However, also in Ezekiel chapter 23, it shows that both the righteous and unrighteous die. So the, the point of this is all suffering is not punishment from God. Rome is going to be punished. They're going to be judged. You may be in the midst of that and endure some of that suffering, but you are not being punished by God. You are marked, you are protected, you are sealed by God. You are not being judged by, by God himself. More to say, but later. Go ahead, Michael. So the point of this is all suffering is not punishment. What about the mark? Romans going to be punished. They're going to be judged. You may be in the midst of that and endure some of those suffering. You are not being punished by God. You are marked. You are protected. You are sealed by God. You are not being judged by God. Yeah, it's a great idea. I mean, great thoughts. Um, I've wondered about the mark of the beast and the mark of the Lord. We'll get to the mark of the beast later. But um, for those who believe, um, and, and truly, I mean, I hate to tell you exactly where I am because, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. You know, I kind of shift from day to day, and there's nothing wrong with that. What I do know without a doubt is that Revelation reminds us or informs us, perhaps, that the time will come clearly, this is the reminder, that the Lord will descend, cry of command, archangels call, sound of the trumpet of God, and that the world will end. Whenever our Lord comes back, He will remove evil, and He will make all things new. And we know that. There will be a new heaven, new earth. That could be a metaphor for just heaven. At the very least, what He will make new is His people, us, we will be gathered with Him and in, in His presence. Whether that's on some sort of new earth that we're unfamiliar with or a, or a new heaven. But the fact is, is that the church will be, and we'll use the word rapture, but it simply means caught up. The church will be caught up at the end of time. I believe the story is revealed more than once. Uh, you've got the um, seven seals, the seven trumpets, and basically the seven bowls of wrath. But just prior to the bowls of wrath, you have seven plagues. 
Now, what I want to remind us of is, after each of these stories, and I believe it's the same story, and I'm not against thinking that, that everything we're talking about in Revelation really is referencing perhaps Rome. We, you know, that will unfold even more clearly when we talk about the dragon, the seven heads, the seven heels, and so forth. Um, you know, for example, Rome's um, standard that everybody used, all the Roman uh, legions would use when they would enter battle, was a red, was a standard, a flag, a red flag with the red dragon on it. And you've got these other uh, symbolic uh, phrases that many, many Bible students uh, believe that what John is receiving here from the Lord is is reminding the church to stand firm against the present um, evil of the Roman Empire. In fact, some say that's the reason it was filled with such symbolism is because John's on the Isle of Patmos, which happened to be a Roman penal colony, and there's no way that he could mention the, you know, the, the dragon being Rome and, and all of that if indeed I mean, it would never have left the island. But I, I think this will unfold later when we get into really from chapters um, um, 15 through 22. So this is what I want to say. Oh, by the way, um, I, I just started about that. The um, ask you about the mark. Look at look at Revelation chapter seven and. Uh, Verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And last week on the way home, I was reminded of this, and so I looked it up. Of course, it's in Ephesians 1. And I, I don't think this is uh, out of the realm of possibility. Uh, clearly not if you're a millennialist and you think that we're living presently in this, in this period of time of the thousand-year reign, meaning the thousand years is, isn't a literal thousand years, it, it's, it's figuratively speaking. Look at verse 13 of Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was the deposit guarantee in our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. It isn't uncommon in the New Testament to, to at least in two huge places, Ephesians and, and, and 1 Corinthians, where you read about the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, I, I kind of put this craft together this week, last week, and I was thinking this is how I understand it. And, you know, you can do your own study, and I encourage you to do that. And Philip, of course, has done his own study. I think it's the same storyline repeated five times. It's, it's, and I refer to this as a progressive parallelism because every time the story is repeated, you have something added to it. Or it's maybe a little bit different in the, in the symbols used. For example, the seven seals, the end of the world was seal six. You'll read that in chapter six. So we go from Revelation four and five, the Lamb of God, you know, re goes to the center, goes to where God is situated, and God is portrayed as a jasper carnelian, this brilliant light. God is holding the scroll, seven seals. No one's worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God, and the entire revelation kicks off with this scene. There is one who is worthy, and we know him because he lives within us. He's the Lamb of God. 
root of David, lion of Judah, the lamb goes forward, takes the scroll, I mean takes it authoritatively, and the heavens go ballistic. They also are silent pretty soon, and so, you know, even the heavens can be quiet and completely silent, but in this case, whenever he took the scroll, they just begin singing a new song, worthy art thou, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and dominion now and forever, and then it goes through the the good news is it's a song about the gospel, right? And Jesus breaks open these seals. Well, by he finishes that in chapter 6. I mean, John finishes recording the sixth seal, which is the end of history in chapter 6. You then have the interlude that, Peter, that, that, that Philip alluded to. Um, and then after chapter 7 in going chapter 8, you have the seventh trumpet. But when the seventh trumpet sounds... Uh, pardon me, when the seventh seal is broken, it just introduces us, the church, to the seven trumpets. And we have the first um, six trumpets in chapters eight and nine. And if, you, and if you were to draw a parallel between the six trumpets and the six seals, they may have, they, they differ a little bit, but basically they're describing the same uh, judgment. These are divine judgments. So every story, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, even the seven plagues, which is all in one chapter, the seven bowls, uh, the fact that, that uh, Babylon falls in chapters 17 through 19, they open and they close with victory. Keep in mind the order. It's really simple. The order is God judges the world, and in that judgment, there is a battle, a clear victory, and Christ wins. It, it, it just repeats itself. And it's a very comforting reminder to the seven churches, and by extension, to us. So you have the seven seals. Actually, you even start with it in, in, in chapters uh, 1 through 3, where you have Christ walking among the seven lampstands, and even there, in fact, I had that text, but I took it out. Even there, we realize that whenever he cites Daniel 7, it's, it's, it's a victory uh, citing, you know, I mean, a citation. It's Christ winning. So you've got the seven seals, and the seven seals introduce the reader to God's divine judgment. Horsemen, one, two, three, four, martyrs crying for revenge, and the sixth seal, earthquakes, and the sun turns black, and everything that's happening, and then at the end of the sixth seal, the battle's over. In fact, you have this in 717, for the lamb at the... Now, as I read these passages, what I'm trying to do is go to the end. So you've got the seven seals, the story is told, and you have the conclusion. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It only, the, the tears are only wiped away when the story is over, when Jesus wins, when the church is avenged, when we're all saved, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. You don't read where God wipes away the tears during the divine judgments during the six seals or the, or the seven trumpets or the seven plagues or the seven bowls of wrath, those are all divine judgments. 
And now we go to the seven trumpets. Once again, verses 8, 9, and 10. And they conclude in, verse, in chapter 11 because there is also a, a small interlude there. You have once again the trumpets trumpet in divine judgment. The seventh trumpet is the end of the world. Christ wins. And it concludes with the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the, now listen, the kingdom of the world has become, not will become, the, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Stories over. But not the revelation, not the 22 chapters, not the scroll that took about 30 feet of of papyrus. Now, the moment that occurs, we go right into another interlude. I think the woman is Israel. I'm not sure where Philip is on this. I think the son is the Messiah, Jesus. And I think the dragon is the devil. And the moment, you know, so you've got this story ending, story told, story ending. It's like a movie that I think I alluded to last week. You'll see a movie. We saw one last night, something like that, an episode of some series that it said eight years earlier. And then they go back because the, the, the author, the director, wanted to direct the audience's attention to this present moment, but then they wanted to explain the character in more detail, and so they go back. Well, it's just the same, I believe. It's the same story told over and again. Um, then you have in chapter 15, the seven plagues, seven bows. We're going to go through this. And once again, divine judgment. The seventh bowl is the end of the world. Jesus wins. And this is how it concludes. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Any of these could have ended. I mean, Philemon is one chapter. Had the Lord wanted to, he could have revealed the revelation of Jesus Christ with the seven seals and ended, really, I think, in chapter 7 or so. But obviously, that's not what our Lord chose, and I think it's because it needs to be repeated over and over and over again until the conclusion, and then, and then I think it will really stay. So you've got the seven bowls. Now you've come in 17 through 19, you've got, the, you've got Babylon. And I do believe Babylon is, is, is not the ancient city of Babylon. I believe, and it could be Rome. In fact, they might have interpreted that as Rome. Uh, today, we might use another city. Basically, I think Babylon is symbolic of every worldly city on the face of the planet. Everywhere where God is mocked and maligned, and abused and the church is persecuted. And that's happening more and more and more. We have Babylons throughout this nation and throughout the world. And God is reminding us, this remnant of the seven and a half billion people who live today, the time's coming. All I'm asking you to do is stay faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Until your last breath, or until I descend with the cry of command. Be faithful.
19. This is chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. And this horse clearly, I believe, is referencing Jesus, unlike the first horseman, um, called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It could have ended right there in chapter 19. But you have one more. You have this final story told. Um, the victory, the dragon is doomed, uh, sent to the abyss. We'll talk about the abyss as we get into chapter 8. Uh, what, you know, what is the abyss? It's the same word, by the way, Philip. That, and I, You may have known this. You probably did. The word abyss is the same word that is referenced in Genesis 1-2 in the, in the Septuagint. I mean, the Greek word that is used right here in Revelation 8 and 9, talking about the abyss, is the same thing that these 70 Greek scholars, who were the first translation of the Hebrew text, used when they talked about the depth. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, abuso, deep. And that's where the dragon is doomed. Uh, that's where he's sent in Revelation 20 and verse 2. Okay, um, and this is how, this is in chapter 22. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What I'm just wanting to remind us of, and I, and I promise you, and I even promise Debbie, I'm not going to remind us every single Sunday. This is the last time you'll see this slide. I promise. But the story, I believe the story is told. I think there, there's only one coming again. And the story is told at least four times, I think five times in these 22 chapters. And it has the same ending every time. The seven seals, Jesus wins. Seven trumpets, Jesus wins. The uh, mental, the middle interlude, the woman, the the uh, son, the dragon, the devil cannot defeat Israel's birth of the Messiah. The seven plagues, Jesus wins. The seven bowls of wrath, Jesus wins. The fall of Babylon, Jesus wins. All the way to Revelation 22. Sure. One story repeated with different symbols time and again. And I think the number seven is interesting. You've got the horsemen, the, the four right. horsemen, um, and you've got the angels holding back things. the winds as, as a there Philip was making That's right. Okay. You're, you're off the hook, Michael. <clears throat> Philip, why don't you close us um, out? We have five or ten minutes, brother. And then said, I'll pick up Revelation 8 that, next uh, week. It's certainly we'll against the uh, the, these judgments are against the yeah, enemies of God. Yeah, anything you want to do. You, you can, you no can doubt read, about You that. can go into chapter 8. Uh, okay. And through it's the fine. text, God is reminding His So that people. way for late, it's your fault and I'm okay. He is victorious. And we do need to bear that in mind. Always, no matter what the circumstances look like, because I can assure you in the first century, there were probably a lot of Christians who didn't think they were very victorious. Neither did they think that way in Babylon 600 years before that. They need to be reminded that God is victorious. God is in control. And I believe the example that we read here in chapter 8 regarding the, the trumpets is also, again, a judgment against, well, God uses things to judge nations. 
Uh, I heard one of my teachers years ago, Richard Rogers, make the comment that God judges people in eternity, but nations in time. And what God does to the nations is that he will use things in, um, in nature, or he will, he will use physical things to judge people, to punish people. And then chapter 8 is a prime example of that thing. In chapter 8, regarding the trumpets, you will see that there were four, um, the first four trumpets deal with God's judgment by using nature against Rome. And so in this case here where it says the first angel, it says the first angel sounded this trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and was hurled down to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Just letting you know, again, this was one of the four classifications of nature. They, they understood nature in four ways. Through the land, through the sea, through fresh water, and through the heavenly bodies. That's how they understood nature. And each of the first four trumpets attack that very area. The first thing attacked the land. Therefore, crops. There were going to be things that were going to be destroyed. God uses nature. He will use things to come down to, to punish people. In Egypt, he certainly did, did that. He used a lot of things from nature to punish the Egyptians, and he did there. And so it, it talks about a third. That's just referring to like a larger number. Again, that the idea of a third is also found in the book of Ezekiel as well, by the way. I believe it's chap, uh, chapter 5. Yes. Yeah, and so it's not always talking about a necessarily a complete judgment, but it is a, a judgment that God is using. And so uh, so each of these here, we have God, God doing the judgment. The first one was on the land. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a huge mountain ablaze was thrown into the and, sea. And the, and That's the all the trumpet was. The, uh, well, that could very well so have been really, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is symbolic. Eruption. Remember, even in Egypt, that's likely what happened during the time of the plagues as well. And believe you me, the people in the first century were very much aware of the damage of what volcanoes would, would do. Whether you believed it was later or earlier on the book, whenever the book was written, Vesuvius in 79 AD, people were very much aware of what a volcano could, could do. Because we can now have, have unearthed the city of Pompeii and seen people in motion because of the destructive power of this. God uses these things to judge people and oh, uh, to judge nations. The third one here, it says, the third angel, uh, there was a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky, the third of the rivers and the springs of water, the fresh water. So that was the third element that God used to judge them. And the last one here, the fourth one, he says, in the sound of his trumpet, a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Symbolic language to realize that God is just judging that. And you can find these elements in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, you see the very same thing. Matter of fact, you'll see in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is in his sermon, he talks about the sun being darkened, uh, things, the moon turning to blood, all these things like that. This is imagery out of the Old Testament to let them know that an empire is going down. And that's just what occurs here. But there's just one overarching thing that I do want to bring, bring out. And that's why, again, I think I differ a little bit with regard to, I don't believe it's necessarily the end of time, but God judging a nation, though it can happen at any time as well. There is something that is also said in chapter 9, and I'm sorry that we had to scurry up to this right, right here. But it says the rest, 
of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They didn't repent. God is calling people to repent. He uses natural calamity in the lives of people to cause them to repent. I can assure you one thing. God does not relish the thought of people dying outside of him. He's never thought like that. Even the enemies of God himself, God does not relish them losing and going to hell. According to John 3, 17, God sent his son not to condemn, but to save. God is always in the saving business. If there's also another thing that this book of Revelation teaches us is that God is a lover of humanity. He will do whatever he can to urge you to repent to him. He'll use natural calamity. He'll use invasion of other armies. He'll do whatever he can to cause you to repent. Yet they were so hardened. They didn't repent. There's always a consequences to actions. But God was still calling Rome to repent. And the sad thing is, Rome didn't. And Rome was destroyed mainly for three things. It was destroyed by natural calamities over the years. It was destroyed by internal decadence, by the rulers, by the corruption of them. And then by invading armies. The very thing that John talks about in chapter 8 and 9 as well. Uh, we'll get into more of that possibly later, but it's uh, really powerful stuff. But I do fully believe, though, we need to be reminded, as Michael has told us, God is victorious. No matter what it looks like out there, God is victorious and God is in control. Amen. And you thought Philip was just a quiet, <laughs> great Bible student. You're as loud as I am. Okay, this is going to be fun. Oh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Vince, would you close this, please, sir? Thank you. Amen. Amen. Uh, I need as many minutes to help. We're going to set the chairs up and get the tables out for the shower. Tables out, eight chairs around each table. I want to say I'm so hey, good hey, to see you. It's, Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I got home at 10 o'clock last night. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, you know, 
Uh, I good. need as many good. minutes to help. We're going to set the good. chairs up and get the tables out for the shower. So, revelation about both the end of Rome and the end of the world? No. It's about one or the other? I, no. If, if, once again, if, if, you, if you use Rome literally, then what you can't because by 1000 AD, Rome was no longer, and that was... A thousand, you know, 50, that was a long time ago. So, but if you use it figuratively, in the eyes of the seven churches, I and, and I don't disagree with Philip. In the eyes of the seven churches, they probably had in mind Rome. The whole revelation lends itself to. He's talking about Rome in every way, not just the natural disaster, but everything about it: the dragon, the seven hills, and so forth. But figuratively, I believe yeah. it's, it's the Romes of the world. It's the Babylons of the world. And uh, yeah. And I don't yeah. think it was a literal thousand years. If, if, it could be, and we'll find out when the Lord comes. You know, if, you know, if that's yeah. true, it's, the, the only thing that I really like about that is that it, it, there's a second, you give everybody a second chance. You, you know, with your whole premillennial thought, everybody has another shot at it. You know, so you have the rapture, the church is taken right. up, everybody sees you, you know, you know, your wife sees her husband go up, and she's yeah. like, I want to be there. And and she's got time to prove it. She's got seven years during the tribulation, you know. If you can remain unfaithful through that, you have earned your faith. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And that could be. I mean, there are a lot of great thinkers who think that the premillennial thought is without a doubt the way to interpret Revelation. Other great thinkers say, no, it's just figurative. Yeah. What I'm yeah. trying to they would have been aware of what natural calamity is. And God uses it against It's really the nations. same story, he, and he it doesn't affect has. us. The, the text that he read about repentance, it follows every, all of these. The seven, seven seals. Jesus, uh, sure. Jesus says to John, they didn't repent. I gave them the chance to repent. Seven trumpets, they didn't repent. Seven bowls, they didn't repent. The fact is, he is giving us all this time to repent. So I, I do think the churches in Asia were thinking about Rome, if that was the question. Probably wasn't. Okay. I don't because Rome's, but Rome can, Rome can symbolize all kinds of stuff. You know, Nashville, downtown at the wrong time. Thank you. How are you, young lady?